We're going to pick up where we left off last week. We're in focus on, on the series called Equipped. And it's, it's taking a look as, as what the body of Christ and where we are today. When we're faced with any challenges, the proper equipping of what we need to do is crucial. Having all the tools necessary to do a task. Okay, there was a video that went around. It was kind of funny. I thought it was funny, but it was out on Facebook. It was like how a carpenter puts in a screw and it's perfectly straight. And then it said an electrician is going at an angle. And it said like a plumber going in at another angle and some other tradesman's hitting it in with a hammer and all of this other stuff. There's two parts. Number one is having the right tools. And number two is knowing how to use them. Right? If you don't know how to use the tool properly, then it won't do you any good. If you've never prepared with it and practiced with it and things like that, it's like any task that you ever do. The more you do it, the better you get at it, right? I was telling uh, Ethan, he'd come up and was talking to me this morning. And I said, boy, Maddie sure sings a lot better than I do, doesn't she? And he's just like, uh-huh. <laughs> and I'm like, well, you didn't have to agree quite so quickly on that, but whatever. Like, but I mean, that's the thing. Like, there's, there's a natural ability and then there's the honing of the skills. You know, there's, there's the, the ability to come together. It's like public speaking as an example. You know, that is the number one fear that people in this country have is public speaking with number two being death. So they'd rather die than stand up here. Y'all never understand that. But, but be that as it may, it's like you've got people that it's like, I, I, I hear this all the time, you know, uh, the last church that I came from, when the guy that took over my position, he had never preached a sermon in his life. And they're calling me and they're like, well, he's not a very good preacher. And I'm like, he just preached his first sermon for heaven's sake, give the guy some time. He got pretty good at it, but it takes some time. It's like, here you've got someone who spent his entire life in the ministry and then you've got someone who's never done this before. There's a big difference there. So it's, it's being equipped properly. When we look at the definition of the word equip, it is to supply with the necessary items for a particular purpose. We need to be prepared. As Christians today, as a body of Christ, we must be prepared for what comes against us. And how we find out that we're equipped is too often too late. It's in the moment that we need it. We're like, oh, it's kind of like fire extinguishers. Right? How many of you guys got a bunch of fire extinguishers in various places of your house? Most of us, the answer is no. We might have one, and it sits in some cabinet somewhere because they're ugly, and you don't want to see them. But there are times when you need them, boy, it's a little late at that point. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's getting an understanding of being equipped. That is where the training comes in, the preparation, the purchasing of whatever items need to be done. In our case, when we're talking about spirituality, we're talking about being able to discern the good from the evil, knowing what God wants, what God has, and what God is going to do in every situation. We must be confident. When we walk into a situation as the, as the body of Christ, we need to be confident in what God has said. And that is what we've been getting into. In 2 Timothy 3, this is kind of the earmark of the verse uh, of the Bible that we're using in this series. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. He basically told us that without this, we are ill-equipped. Not owning one. I mean knowing what it says. In order to know what it says, you must read it. And really to get into the inner workings of it, you got to get past just reading it. you got to begin to study it. 
And when you study, you've got to understand the structure of this thing. Because in America today, this has become just another holy book. Compared to others, it's one that we, we talk about and we use, but even churches today are starting to go against this in their beliefs and in their doctrine. And they're saying, well, there are parts of the Bible that are true, but not all of them are true. You know which parts aren't true? The parts they don't like. Isn't that a coincidence? I mean, it's one of those things where we have to understand what this is. When we talk about this this thing, it is something that there's no way that a person could put this together. Because it's not a book. And I know I hammer on this, but I want to get it in your head of what it is. We've been talking about this on Wednesday nights. This is a collection of writings. 66 individually, individual books written by over 40 authors over a 1,500-year span on three different continents. Most of the authors never met one another, and yet they work cohesively. You cannot get there on accident. I've gone through some of the stuff on Wednesday night showing how powerful and how, how unbelievable this thing is. There's not another book in existence that acts like this, and yet we question the authority of it. We look at it and we say, okay, God, I know that's what you said, but let me tell you what you meant. We question the origins of it, whether we can trust it. We, we want to just take the parts we like and throw out the parts we don't. And here's the problem. If you're doing that, you are ill-equipped. And you find out in your moment of weakness when the attack comes, whether that armor is on, whether you are prepared, how you handle the situation. Look at Ephesians chapter 6, talking about the armor of God, being equipped, being prepared. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. It says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age, a spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. He is telling us that we need to put it on. You know what it means to put it on? It means stop taking it off. It is something that you have intentionally done. You weren't born with it. You weren't given this armor that just said, oh man, it's on me all the time. No, it is telling you that you must put it on. And then it goes into who we are going against. That the attacks of the devil, the wiles of the devil, means the method. It's the Greek word methodos, the ways in which he comes. And as I told you, when you study this out, diabolos means that it is one who is penetrating time and time again until he finally breaks through. We saw that with Eve. He said, did God really say that? Got her questioning what God had said. He did the same thing with Jesus. And he said, well, wait a minute. If, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. He's, he's questioning the Word of God. But Jesus handled it where Eve did not. There are people who handle it where others do not. And it all comes down to preparation. We're not going against one another. My beef is never with you. It is never with anybody else. It's not even with those that are on Facebook. I know it. You ever try to have a debate on Facebook? It goes well. I mean, it's unbelievable. Everybody's opinions that come out of the woodwork. I had a gal when, when they passed uh, the law saying, oh yes, now homosexual marriage is marriage and all of that. And somebody was saying something on there and I put something like, well, actually Scripture forbids this and yada, yada, yada. And she's like, Jesus never mentioned anything about gay marriage. And my response is, he never mentioned anything about cars, emails, or potato chips, but we got those too, Right? And, and so I put a list of 20 things that Jesus said about marriage, right? Going down this line by line. And her response was, well, I've never really read the Bible, but... 
And I'm like, then why are you arguing a position from the Bible? Like, in other words, the Bible to you is irrelevant if you've never taken the time to study to see what it says. So don't try to make it say something it doesn't. Your beliefs are fine. You believe whatever on earth you want. But it's got to be grounded in something factual. And don't make a claim on Scripture. You see, our beef is not with those. It is with the individual, those spiritual uh, powers that are in high places that are blinding the eyes of those who love the darkness and hate the light. That's where our beef is. We see it in, in, in the book of Daniel where, where the angel comes down and was kept up from, for 21 days and he wasn't able to get down and needed uh, Michael to come down and help. You see this spiritual thing going on. You see other places where it talks about that in Ezekiel 28, or 14, one of the two, where he, uh, he says to the king of Tyre and the prince of Tyre. And the prince of Tyre is the individual on this earth, but the king of Tyre is most definitely talking about Satan because it says you were in Eden, the garden of God. Eden ceased to exist with man in it at the moment sin took place. Therefore, whoever this king of Tyre was, he didn't live back then. So we know who he's talking to. He's dealing with not only the man, but the power behind the man. So we see where our battle takes place. But with Paul telling us this, he says in verse 13, Therefore, so because of all of this, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Now here's the thing. He says put on the whole armor of God. He didn't say put on parts. He said, don't put on the pretty parts, the parts you like. We're going to talk about one of those today. He says, put on the entire thing. Because as you found out last week, if you're missing a piece, you are now ill-equipped. You are not prepared and you are vulnerable to attack. We'll get into that more in here in just a minute. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you are able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. It's a mouthful, but here's the deal. Put on the entire thing. It talks about the battle, the armor, the, the parts that are there. He says put on the entire thing, not a little bit. But there are two parts to this we talked about last week, and we're going to get into this. Number one is in verse 14, standing therefore, having girded your waist with truth. In other words, it's the belt of truth. And as you saw last week, this belt of truth is the most crucial part. If I've got a picture of it, I believe. Well, here's the whole armor, as you can see. We're getting into all of these things. Do I have just the belt up there? I may or may not. There it is. Now, it didn't look exactly like that. But here's what you've got to understand. Everything locked in to that belt. The breastplate of righteousness, which we're going to talk about today, locked into there. The leg guards that they would wear could lock into there. The sword and the scabbard were on that. The shield would be held on that, as you will see that this, when it talks about the fiery, farts, uh, fiery darts of the devil, either one would get you, wouldn't it? You know, you could go either way. Hang around with those boys back there. They'll light you up anytime. The fiery darts of the devil, there's a reason it says that specifically. Because when these things came in, there were actual darts that were lit on fire and these shields could extinguish them. So understanding what it is talking about, this is not some just like, oh, let's just look at this. Oh, yeah, we can extinguish this. There were a physical purpose to this. This belt was crucial. It had to do with truth. 
As I told you last week, we've got two standards of truth, objective and subjective. We've got the truth that in and of itself proves itself, and then you've got your opinion of it. If your opinion is not grounded in something objective, then it is nothing more than your opinion. I've told you before, I don't care who preaches from this pulpit, including myself. If it is not grounded in the Word, you need to throw it out. Like, you guys need to understand something. I get requests for people to come in all the time to speak at our church. You notice we don't have a lot of guest speakers. We bring some in. But I, man, I go through a fine-tooth comb to check these people out. I want to know that they're grounded in the church, and I want to know they stand on the Word. Because we're not going to bring in nonsense into this place. There's enough nonsense with me here. We can't handle anymore. And so, the thing is, is what is our objectivity? The thing what we look at in this is morality. God is the standard of good. Everything short of God does not meet the standard. Therefore, all have sinned and fallen short of that glory. Therefore, all need a Savior. It's not a matter whether you're a good person or a bad person. We're all bad people, but we are saved by the goodness and graciousness of God Himself through His Son, Jesus, that the blood was poured out for you and I. It is all about truth. Everything locks into this. There's a man named Ravi Zacharias. Maybe you've heard of him, maybe you haven't. One of the sharpest minds to walk the earth, especially in our modern time. He is currently dying of cancer. I heard something that he may have died even last night. But this man has stood on stages for over 50 years around the world. He has talked to people. He's a philosophical guy. And he stands on this fact that he said, without God, there is of no objective standard to anything. And he has stood there, and, and, and we are losing a great man. And the sad part for me is, is that when he first was diagnosed, you know what his words were? He said, if it is God's will, I'll be healed. But if not, I'm ready to go home. Broke my heart. One, I have immaculate respect for this man. He has done tremendous things. But it goes back to what the Word says. In his mind, Scripture says we may or may not be able to stand on the promise that God is willing to heal all and able to heal all. That tells me exactly what I need to know. You guys, it all goes back to Scripture. That is the truth. Look at the result of truth. In Romans 1, verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who do what? They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Powerful words being said there. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen and being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but become, became futile in their thoughts. Now that's powerful there too. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an Image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, so because of this, God has also gave them up to the uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Now watch, they exchange the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. What do we see? We see that truth is self-evident. That's what makes our Constitution so powerful, that we hold these truths to be self-evident. 
In other words, they and of themselves are objective because they are clearly seen by what is around us and what, how our world works. That is key to understand. That all men are created equal and yada, yada, yada. And the key word there being created. It's very obvious that we didn't come as by some happy accident. That we were not some cosmic goo that turned into uh, this incredibly intelligent being. Well, some of us are. I'm looking in the back. You know, the thing is, is that it is all based on this. So what do they do? So the truth is obvious, but we suppress it. Because we don't want to believe it. And we suppress it in our unrighteousness. In other words... If this is truth, that means there's a standard. And if I don't like that standard, if I just pretend that truth doesn't exist, then I can just live my life happily the way I want to. Listen, guys, being a Christian is not convenient, but it is grounded in the facts of everything that we see around us. There's no way to deny it. So that is the key to understand. They suppress the truth, and they exchange the truth of God for the lie. What did the Pharisees do when they were dealing with Jesus? Remember, four Messianic miracles that only Messiah could perform. The Pharisees would have to investigate. And they were there investigating, and they saw them themselves, and they tried to deal with it, and they were coming up with stuff, and they're bribing people. What did they do? The truth was in front of them. But they suppressed it in their unrighteousness, bringing condemnation on themselves and the nation of Israel, who should have recognized him at his time and his coming. In John chapter 16, verse 13, it says, However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will tell you things to come. Let me tell you what this doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit will always guide you to the right Bible interpretation. If that were the case, then we would have no disagreements in Bible interpretation, right? You ever have somebody say that, you know, I know God told me to do this, but it's contrary to Scripture? I have. I may have said it myself a time or two. The bottom line is this, is what is it grounded in? The Spirit of truth is the name of the Holy Spirit. And He will guide us into all truth. And that's the thing. Why do we need to go into all truth? Because truth is objective. Always is. Your opinion is irrelevant. When we look at that belt again, you've got to understand this. Without truth, none of the armor works. Without that belt, nothing will function as it's designed. You will have problems. But let's get into the part for today. Verse 14 again of Ephesians 6 says, Standing therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now I told you last week that truth, and we went through Scripture and showed you that, is the Word of God. And we had two words, Logos and Rhema. Logos, we always say, is the written word. Rhema being the spoken word. And I told you that that is too simple of a definition because in John 1, it says that the word became flesh. That is the word Logos. We know that that's talking about Jesus. So therefore, it can't be the written word per se. It can't be that simple. There's more to it. But we see it as the word. There's time and time. Your word is truth. We see it as, uh, in Scripture all over the place. Here, the breastplate of righteousness is a weapon. we got to understand that. It is used in the same context with all other weapons. We think of these as defensive mechanisms, but the thing is, is that we are to be spreading the gospel, which means that we are on the offensive. We are not sitting around waiting to be attacked. The armor is there to protect us in our endeavors as we are moving forward with the gospel. You guys see that? More often than not, churches today, when they talk about this, it's always to protect us from the attacks of the devil. Let me tell you something. He can't attack you unless you let him. It's keeping this on, being prepared. It is to protect you while you're moving. 
Has anybody ever played paintball? Yeah, show of hands, right? Does it hurt? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Emily's back to you. She's like, I don't know what you're talking about. It don't hurt. I don't feel nothing. You've probably never been shot, have you? You're that good. Well, I have been shot more than one time, let me tell you something. And uh, the first time I went out there, never playing the game before, I was like, okay, shorts and a t-shirt seemed like a pretty good idea. It was not. First of all, I'm not fast. I'm not limber. I don't move well, and I'm not quiet. So I was a sitting target, let's put it that way. So the next time I went out, it was 98 degrees, 100% humidity. I've got two pairs of sweatpants on, two sweatshirts on. I probably lost 12 pounds that day. I wasn't taking any chances because it hurt. But here's the one thing that I noticed is when I'm sitting there still waiting for someone to come around and I got shot, I don't care what you had on, it hurt. But when I was on the offense and moving around, I can't tell you how many times I got hit and I had to look and it's like, oh, there's paint on me. I didn't even feel it. There was something different there that was going on. Call it adrenaline. I don't know why your adrenaline would be moving for that. It's weird, but, but anyway, but it's like I just didn't feel it. There was a big distinction to that. I'm trying to show you that this armor is not to protect you from the attacks of the enemy. You know why? We have authority over that. We are not standing still. It is to protect you as you're moving forward. Okay? Now let's look at this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. I'm showing you that this righteousness, this breastplate of righteousness is a weapon. Look at uh, verse 1, chapter 6, verse 1. We then as workers together with him also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in an acceptable time, I have heard you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. But in all things, we commend ourselves as ministers of God. In much patience, tribulation, needs, distresses, stripes, imprisonments, tumults, labors and sleeplessness and fasting by purity by knowledge by long suffering by kindness by the holy spirit by sincere love by the word of truth by the power of god and by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left by honor and dishonor by evil report and good report as deceivers and yet true as unknown and yet well known as dying and behold we live as chastened and yet not killed as sorrowful yet always rejoicing as poor yet making many riches having nothing and yet possessing all things now We see armor and righteousness tied in together. But here's the thing. Who wrote this? It was Paul. What do we know about Paul? He's writing to this church in Corinth. This was a kind of a screwed up church that got a bunch of weird stuff going on. But he's writing all of these things that are going on. Here's what wasn't happening. Paul was not sitting in the church of Jerusalem. And these things just kept coming against him. He couldn't figure out what was going on. He was constantly on the move. All of the things that were happening to him were a result of his work in the ministry, doing the work of the evangelist. You guys see that? Okay? He's the same guy that told the church of Ephesus about this armor of God. Yet, none of these things ever slowed him down. In other words, whatever the enemy may bring, it never stopped him from the work that he was called to do. Why is that? Because they were of little effect. He had the armor on. He knew how to handle it. Look at Isaiah 59, verse 17. It says, He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with the zeal as a cloak. So what did we just see here? This isn't a New Testament concept. This is something that had always been around. Righteousness has always been there. Salvation has always been there. It was just the payment for it has changed. 
So righteousness as a breastplate, helmet of salvation. The thing that we need to know about the breastplate is this. When you see this, here's a picture of it, I think. Okay, you can kind of look at that. You notice the abs, but they're not actually abs. All right, just telling you up front. Okay, they didn't model this after me, that's for sure. But what would happen, it was hard to, it's hard to find a good picture because you know what happens a lot of times we hear this and we kind of over-embellish what this thing is and all of that. Remember, these people had to move. But this was a series of uh, sheets of metal that went over, kind of like scales. And the thing was, is so they would strap. So that's really what those things should be, is that they were kind of overlapping metal because then you could move. If it was a solid piece, how would you bend over? You know what I'm saying? Like you ever worn one of them, them brace things or something like that? Like you can't. You can't move. You, you know, it's meant to keep it that way. So it was a series of metal. And what happened is the breastplate was the shiniest, most beautiful, glamorous piece that was on their weaponry that these guys had. It began at the top of their necks. So it went up a little bit higher than what this did. And all the way down to their knees. So I'm telling you that this is not exactly how it would work. It was composed of two different individual pieces. It had a front and a back, and these two pieces were held together with brass rings that were on the top of the shoulder. So these, these metal pieces that were there were like fish scales. Is the only way I know how to do it. This was the heaviest piece. It weighed about 40 pounds, okay? So can you imagine walking around with this thing on? And that's just part of it. And they walked everywhere. To put it in perspective, Goliath had a breastplate on. Talked about the armor he was wearing. You know what that weighed? 125 pounds. So heavy. This thing was so elaborate. It's usually made of bronze or brass, most of the time brass. And the more the soldier would walk around, the shinier that would get because as these things would rub together, it would create a sheen on it. This is one of the first things that people would notice is this breastplate. And so it was enhanced the more that the soldier wore it. The more that you wear this breastplate, never taking it off, always keeping it on, the more conscious of your righteousness in Christ that you become. You see, when you're armored up, you know it. You brightly shine as a light in the dark world. That is one way to look at it. But this righteousness is not something that is meant to just be a defensive weapon. It is meant to be an offensive one. And if you're not engaged in battle, you're just putting on stuff for no purpose. If you're not actively attacking the kingdom of the enemy, so to speak, then why would he come after you individually? You're not a threat. Now remember, the battlefield's always up in your mind. If he can get you to think wrong, he can get you to act wrong. If he can get you to act wrong, he can get you to talk wrong. If he can get you off your game, off kilter, off from what Scripture has said, then he can get you from acting and performing. It's your ideas versus God's ideas. It always comes back to the Word. What is this grounded in? So we got a lot of opinions that are out there on different things, but here we're talking about being engaged in battle. That is the crucial part to understand this. If you're not engaged, none of this would matter. Paul's words is that the whole armor is engaged in battle. So we know about the devil. We know what he's doing. He's trying to penetrate your mind. Christ's followers who do not understand why or how they have been made righteous will walk in condemnation. They will be convinced that they are not worthy, they are not capable. I hear this all the time. You know when somebody gets born again, they give their life to Christ, there's this honeymoon period, if you will, where they're kind of like, yeah, this is good and all of that. Eventually something's going to happen. It's going to throw them off kilter and it's going to slow them down. And then they will begin to think, it's like, man, I should, 
I should go and, and, and witness to my friends. Ah, oh, but what if they ask a question, question I don't know the answer to? Or what if they bring something up and I just, I just don't know how to respond? Or I'd like to teach a Bible study, but boy, I just don't know the Bible good enough. Or I'd like to, to preach on a Sunday, but oh, I don't know. I don't know the Word. What, what if they don't like it? Who cares? I mean, the thing is, is that that is the enemy playing with your mind, trying to keep you from doing the work. If he can get you off kilter, he can keep you from being any good to the kingdom. Do you guys realize that every one of us were not saved for ourselves, but for a purpose? Born again by God's grace as we receive that. And then the moment that we are saved, we immediately have a job to do. Then go back. What are we trying to get to? We're trying to get right to, or, or, uh, paradise regained. We see paradise lost in Genesis. But what was the first thing that God gave Adam before he gave him a family, before he did everything? He didn't say, hey, I made this great garden for you. Will you just hang out and do nothing all day? Be a lazy pile. That would be awesome. No, he said, I need you to work this. Tend it. Grow it. Expand it. He had a job. His second, the breath of life was blown into him. He was put to work. You and I, when the Spirit enters into us, immediately need to go to work. That's not what happens, is it? For often, for years, we'll sit in church, we'll hear sermons, but we never grow past that. We're never endeavoring to go to further things. It seems that 90% of the body of Christ is walking in some sort of a condemnation, not able to accomplish what God has set them out to do, whatever that may be. It may be their past. It may be their, what they see as deficiencies. It may be anything there. But the enemy will keep you off kilter. It's no different than people who are afraid to go lay hands on the sick because what if it doesn't work? Well, you know what doesn't work? Not praying for them. We know that doesn't work. So, or that works, I guess, however you want to say that. So, he has convinced them that they are not good enough, that they are not capable. But Paul tells us to stand. Remember what that means. It says stand up with your shoulders back, your head high, walk confidently. These Roman soldiers walked around confidently. They are always confident. Understanding what God has freely imparted to us in His righteousness that is based on Him and Him alone and that we confidently wear this breastplate. Because guess what? You didn't pay for it. You didn't do anything to earn it. It was given to you. All you have to do is put it on. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, says, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Whose work was it? It was Christ. As ambassadors, as representatives of Christ. As if God himself were pleading through our words, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. In other words, this has always been about God. It's for his benefit. He wants you there. We implore you, please. We've got to understand that. Romans 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Remember, that's referring to two parts of the Old Testament. The law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might 
might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So again, we look at this, we say, okay, what is this righteousness about? It's all about Him. It is not about you. What part do you believe? Or are there you? You are to all and on all who believe. So how does one become righteous? We believe. We put our faith and trust in the work of God. But it is through Jesus and Him alone. And why was it done? To demonstrate His righteousness. That's the whole Passover. A demonstration of the righteousness of God at this present time. That He is the one who justifies us. Who makes us right. He's given righteousness fully to all those who believe. Romans 5 verse 17, it says, If by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Whose gift? Jesus's. This righteousness. Man brought death, Jesus brings life. You guys getting this? This is the righteousness. Again, so, so far, what have we seen that you bring to the part here? Nothing. Work's been performed. You simply accept it. Romans 10, verse 17, then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Boy, we love this one. We love this passage. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God and and all of this. But the context is the entire chapter is present day Israel. How they rejected the gospel. You have Romans 9 talking about Israel's past. Romans 10, they're present in that moment. And chapter 11 is talking about their uh, their future. Romans 10, verse 14. Then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? It's hearing the truth of the gospel. It's not hearing the words that makes a difference. It is hearing by faith and accepting what you hear as truth. If you reject the word of God, then it is of no advantage to you. The Pharisees rejected the word of God standing in front of them, rejected the miracles they saw with their own eyes. What good did it do them? None. They refused to see the truth objectively. All they knew is what they wanted. They wanted to keep it there. It always comes back to that. If all believers have been made with the righteous and are supposed to reign in life like kings, then why are so many believers running around with defeated lives? Why are we not reigning? Why are we not walking in fullness? I'll tell you. Their minds have not been renewed to the Word of God. Accepting what you hear as truth. God said it. I believe it. That's it. I know there are times where things are tough. I know there are times where, man, I just don't have an answer for this. I don't know what to do with this. Here's what I know. God has always been faithful. Every time the nation of Israel were in bondage or anything like that, in sin, God always reminded them that He would always keep a remnant, that that nation would always exist. There was always a remnant of people who stood on what God had said. He remained faithful. 1 John verse five, or chapter 5, verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Now this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Now this word confidence in the Greek is the Greek word parisia. It means it's a boldness or an openness. This is the picture of a person who is exceptionally open, exceptionally bold, and this is how they approach every situation. It's almost arrogant. It teeters 
on that. But the attitude of righteousness will profoundly affect your prayer life. It'll affect the way you walk. When you are confident in what God has said, there is no situation and attack of the enemy that will be effective in your life. When this whole crisis started and everybody's talking about that, I said, I am not afraid of this. That if somebody called and needed prayer and they had COVID and when they still didn't know what was going on and they still had the numbers overinflated because they didn't know what was going to happen, I would walk into that for two reasons. Number one, I know what the word says. Uh, One, as as an elder of the church, I am to go and lay hands on the sick. That does not stop when things get rough. Number two is that if for some reason I caught it and if I die, then to die is Christ. Or to live as Christ and to die as gain. I'm with Him. I'm okay. I was never worried because I am that confident in the righteousness that God has given me. And you can call it arrogance if you want, but I know what the Word said and I have chosen to stand on it. Even in times where I didn't make any sense. I've told you guys this story before, but when my wife, before Ariana was born, was pregnant, we had a miscarriage. But the entire time, I was confident in God. And even in that moment, and it hurt, believe me, it hurt, I was not happy. But the one thing that I knew is that God is always faithful. And no matter what happens, He is there. These two stood on the Word of God for six or eight weeks while Neil was going through his accident. And in times of weakness, she was encouraged and built up. And now they've got this incredible testimony that they're sharing with everybody. Why? Because no matter what happens in life, my God is faithful to His promises and His Word. There is a confidence that we walk around in. Peter talks about that no matter what happens in 1 Peter chapter 1. He said, our confidence is in Jesus because of the resurrection. Because Jesus was risen from the grave, then our faith and hope can be put in Him. Because He said He was going to do it, and then He did it, and the entire world has been affected because of it. That's where our faith lies. In Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10, we see righteousness used as a defensive weapon as well. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will be joyful in God. For He has clothed me in the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Here is this robe covering head to foot. Think of a monk. That's kind of how these robes would look. They would put them on. It covered everything. Everything clothed in righteousness. Isaiah 51, verse 7. Listen to me. You who know righteousness, you people in whose heart is my law. Come back to that. Do not fear the reproach of men, nor be afraid of their insults. For the moth will eat them up like a garment. The worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever. And my salvation from generation to generation. This is God speaking through the prophet Isaiah saying, listen to me, you who know righteousness. That means there were people who didn't. Those are the ones who should be fearful. But he said, whose heart is my law. Remember what Moses told them before they're getting to go into the promised land? He's like, you're keeping the law, but you need to circumcise your heart. Going through the motions is one thing, but your heart does not belong to God. It's no different today. We go to church, but you know what? What good does it do you? I mean, today, church is just a secondary event. We make it a part of our life. We make it not a part of our life. Sometimes we're here. Sometimes we're not. If something better comes along, we may miss. This is a part of the process, but the everyday walking with the Lord is where we should be. We see this righteousness laid out from the beginning. Adam, we know him. His role and identity was the first man. He is cast in the biblical story as the Son of God. He was the son of the king. He was royalty. His father, he was the ruler of Eden. Remember, God, there was a mountain in Eden that was there, and that's where God reigned. But 
uh, Adam was there right there with him. He was to work in the garden. He was put there by God. But once he ex- was expelled, he was displaced from the kingdom of God. Dealt with the, the work and the stuff that came out with that. As a result of the curse, he lost his earthly immortality. And he died, but Scripture is careful to note that his lineage always lived on, most precariously through Noah, all the way to Abraham, and, and ultimately through Israel, and finally to Jesus. His eternal life was guaranteed by God's power as a firstborn from the dead. It was always a promise. Israel, do you trace the heritage? You can go all the way back to Adam. He was considered the nation as a son. It was not only in light of the nations, but God intended Israel to rule over the nations. Remember, he took them as his own. This only makes sense that God is a ruler of the nations and Israel being his son. Israel would be what? The prince, the son of the king. They were to rule. Israel is referred to as God's servant, but like Adam, their transgressions led to exile from the place where they had been divinely present from time before. The result of this suffering under foreign powers and kings was great. Eventually, they're exiled and they cease to exist as a nation. But the prophets foretold about these dry bones coming back to life in Ezekiel 37. And the nation is reborn after the exile in the form of returning inhabitants from Judah to Babylon. We've seen that happen before and it just happened in our lifetime. Never before had a nation ceased to exist as a whole to come back together. But it was prophesied that it would happen. Moses was the son of Abraham. He was the son of God because the lineage matters. You'll notice that they hang on those lineages all the time. His status was special since he was God's appointed deliverer and he was a ruler of the nation. And God tells him that he will be as God uh, to Pharaoh and to Moses' brother Aaron. But because of the divine power that flowed through him, he would come to be seen by the Israelites as this quasi-divine figure. Even though he was just a man and made sure they knew that. He was called the servant of God. He suffers for his sin because he, he struck the right rock when he was to speak to it. And was prohibited from entering the promised land. But though God permits him to see it from a distance before his death, he never gets to go there. The transfiguration informs us that Moses lived on with God. As with everyone, his resurrection and a new Eden was contingent on uh, what, he was, uh, what was to come. You see, all of these people went through life. Got some things right, something wrong. But the thing was, is they're all considered righteous according to Hebrews 11. And that brings us to the King, the Messiah, and the Davidic covenant. God promised David an everlasting dynastic succession. That somebody would sit on your throne, David, for all eternity. The fulfillment of this promise would fail in the Old Testament era due to the death of Israel and the exile and all this other stuff. We also don't see it happen in the New Testament. Did Jesus ever Jerusalem? No, he did not. Israel's resurrection through Judah, the tribe of David, would keep the promise alive. And his fulfillment of the promise would be inaugurated at the first coming of Jesus. The king has been identified. How do these patterns emerge in Israelite kingship and the Messianic son of David? David was an earthly son of God, but the kings of David's line were called son of God in an act of anointed adoption specific to an enthroned king. The king was God's anointed descendant of Judah, his ruling representative among all earthly children. The kingship carried this quasi-divine aspect. Remember, all other nations worshipped their kings as gods themselves. Israel never did that, but there was a divine anointing that was on them and it was recognized. Psalm 89 27 cast the throne of David as the most high among all the nation and David was God's servant. 
As were all other godly kings, one particular branch from the tribe of Judah and David's line would be the individual servant uh, that God would use to bring salvation to Israel. And just like Israel, this individual servant would suffer and die, but yet live to see his offspring, a multitude made righteous by his service. This is the Old Testament promises given to all these people who were from afar off looked and wanted to see, but it never came in their day. And here is Jesus fulfilling all of these things, one yet to to be fulfilled when he reigns from Jerusalem in the Messianic reign, that thousand-year reign of Christ yet to be fulfilled, but it will happen. But what does that have to do with us? It brings us to where we are. All the things that they were called, the sons of God, the servants of God, the rulers, kings, and priests, we have been called. We are the sons of God. In Galatians 3.26, it says, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Wait a minute. If you're the son of the king, and you know who you are in that kingship, there's an authority and a confidence that goes with that. That we are kings. In Revelation 1, uh, starting in part of verse 5 and into 6, to him who has loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, referring to Jesus, and has made us kings and priests, to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Kings and priests ruling and reigning. What were the priests doing? The priests were the ones that they had to go through to have intercession with God in any way. They were fulfilling those promises. The promise here that God had made is fulfilled through Jesus. We are now the priests that carry that message on. We are servants, but no longer simply servants, but we're sons. In 2 Corinthians 6, verse 3, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. You're His servant. That means we take orders. We also may suffer for God. In Romans 5, verse 3, it says, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We rejoice in the sufferings. Romans 8, verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Let me tell you something. Whatever this world may bring, Even to the point of death, nothing will compare to the glory of God with Him in eternity. 1 Peter 5, verse 10, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You see, we may suffer for God, but the promise of God is always there. We are also exiles. John chapter 15, verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now think about that. All through history, anybody who has stood by the precepts composed in this word has been hated by the world. They will go along with different parts of it. In different times, they may go along with all of it. But the time will come where the enemy gets in there and will begin to hate you. We talk about on Wednesday night, the reason we don't have the original manuscripts that were written by the hands of the apostle is because of a Roman ruler named Diocletian in the 300s because what he did is he was reigning and everything was going really well and he built these great colosseums and they had the games. As you guys know, that wasn't a very good thing. And they had the bathhouses and if you don't know what was going on there, it was not good. And all of these other things, the desires of the flesh, and he was fulfilling them, and Rome loved him. But he had a problem, is that these Christians were growing in number. And they weren't partaking of the games, of the bathhouses, of the things that the other Romans were doing. 
So he made an edict to outlaw this and to kill every pastor or jail them, to make them a part of the games where they were fighting lions and fighting one another. Christians were being crucified, and he burned every single copy that he could get his hands on of the Scriptures. Why? Because if you wipe this out and it ceases to exist, then there is nothing to base our beliefs on outside of an encounter with God. That is it. This is the foundation. He failed in his endeavors because we still have it. It is the same that it was. But he knew if he could get rid of this. Why did he hate it? Because those Christians were living so different than everybody else. It was causing a problem. Imagine what would happen in America if we did that. It already does to a degree. But too much of the church has succumbed to the pressure of society and just started to kind of balance things out. Well, you know, I think this is maybe what it means or it doesn't always mean that or whatever. We stand on the truth of the world. We are exiles. And the last promise that was made to them, that is made to us, that we will die, but we will reign with him. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 21. For as by one man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. You see, the patterns that are here, that is laid out to the entire Bible is this. You are what he says you are. If you can get that, it will change your world. Jesus calls you righteous, therefore you are. We wear that righteousness proudly, boldly. Our shoulders are thrown back knowing the kings of this world has given us the authority to walk in this earth. We do not have to fear anything because the bonds of sin and death have been broken. He's taken the keys of the kingdom of death and the authority has been given to man to rule and reign on this earth representing him, knowing ultimately that we will be reigning with Christ in the kingdom to come. You see, that's what we've got to get a hold of. Knowing what these items are is one thing. But putting them on, accepting it as truth, and applying it to your life is the key. You can know everything there is to know about God. But if you do not put into practice those things. That's why in Hebrews 5 it talks about those who by reason of use have had their senses exercised to the will of God. It's putting it into use. Romans 3 verse 21. Last one. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as propitiation by His blood to be received by faith this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God says your righteousness. Stop arguing with him. Stop allowing the enemy to walk around you, to roar, to make noise, to put you into fear. And to defeat you. We've got to stop. You've got to understand that you are the righteousness of God in Christ. That we are in a spiritual battle at all times if we are doing the work of the Lord. But we have nothing to fear. Because the armor is sufficient to stop every attack of the enemy. And we are to push through with righteousness. Being, doing the work of the evangelist. Carrying the mission of God with us everywhere we go. Every single day. There is not a day that we don't do this. You guys with me?
Guys, as we continue in this, I'm telling you, I want you to dig in deep. I want you to climb in the Word and study it like you haven't before. I want you to spend time in prayer because if we can get a hold of this, imagine what we could do in this town. Imagine what would happen. Imagine the revivals that would break forth. We spent an entire year talking about revivals and what spawned them and all of this. Imagine what could take place. It always starts with a body of believers that know all they know is who they are in Christ. That's it. And that is enough. It's you plus God, and that has given you everything you need to succeed.